Good evening, everybody. How are we? Today is Tuesday. Nope, that's a lie. Today is Wednesday, June 3rd. I'm actually recording this um, in the afternoon. It's beautiful out. And um, we're going to do chapter eight, part two today. So it's about, we've got about eight pages to get through. So the this is going to sound weird, but I just want to say this. This second half really happens in two parts, okay? In the first part, we have kind of what happens to Nick. And in the second half, we have what happens to Wilson and Gatsby. So <clears throat> as you may recall, after Nick and Gatsby stay up all night talking, Nick then decides, oh my gosh, you know, I got to go to work. So um, they kind of get up and they go outside and one of the servants tells Gatsby that he's going to drain the pool. And Gatsby says, don't do it today. You know, old sport, I've never used that pool all summer. So for the first time all summer, Gatsby's going to take a swim. <sighs> water, everyone. When you see water in a major work of literature, it can mean a bunch of different things. And I'm not going to actually talk about that till the end of the episode, but I just want you to know when somebody gets into water, one of two things can happen. Okay, so let's keep rolling. Gatsby says he's going to go swimming. Nick says he has to go to work. And I, I know I said this last time, but you also want to note the change of season, okay? Um, we talked about this, like the weather and seasons is another device that authors use to denote, a, like we're signaling that things are changing. Okay, so at the bottom, oh my gosh, this is so heartbreaking. At the bottom, Nick says, I'll call you up. I said, finally, do old sport. I'll call you about noon. We walked slowly down the steps and Gatsby says, I suppose Daisy will call too. He looked at me anxiously as if he hoped I'd corroborate this. I, I suppose so. Well, goodbye. Okay. It's important to know, especially if you're going to watch the movie clip, that Gatsby is still waiting for Daisy to call. Now, remember, we had a moment, a glimmer of the crack in the dream in the previous reading where he's like, well, I, he says, like, I guess I can admit that she loved Tom also, but still today he's just waiting for her to call. Okay. How sad. Have you ever had a friend who's like, I'm just waiting for this guy or this girl to text me or to call me. And you as the friend are like, oh my God, they don't know that he's actually not, or she's actually not going to call you. It's a sad state. So Nick knows she's not going to call, but Gatsby doesn't know that yet. Okay, before Nick leaves, he says to Gatsby, and this is in the movie word for word, he says to Gatsby, they're a rotten crowd, I shouted across the lawn. You're worth the whole damn bunch of them put together. <sighs> then Nick says, I've always been glad I've said that. I said that. It was the only comp compliment I ever gave him because I disapproved of him from the beginning. First, he, pol he nodded politely, and then his face broke into that radiant and understanding smile as if we'd been in ecstatic cahoots on that fact all the time. Oh, man. Okay, so Nick says they're a rotten crowd. And this, this, is, a, this is extremely true. He's talking about Tom, Daisy, Jordan. And they are a rotten crowd. And we're going to get more into their rottenness in Chapter 9. But 
this is what they do. This is what they have done their whole life. They have money. They do whatever they want to whoever they want. And then when things get real, they use their money to protect themselves and they use their money to make sure that other people take the blame. And so that does make them absolutely rotten. At the same time, their rottenness has never slowed them down or they've never had to pay any type of consequence for their rottenness, which is an argument that Fitzgerald is trying to make about wealthy people in America. And sadly, as we all know, 100 years later, that is still true. Okay, so Nick goes off to work, okay? Now, when he gets to work, he, um, he calls Jordan. And she's, she says, oh, no, sorry. She, he, Jordan Baker calls him. Um, so they have this conversation, and she says, I've left Daisy's house, she said. I'm at Hempstead and going down to Southampton this afternoon. And Nick said, Nick thinks to himself, probably it had been tactful to leave Daisy's house, but the act annoyed me, and her next remark made me rigid. You weren't so nice to me last night. And then Nick says, how could it have mattered then? Meaning like, oh, she's trying to like flirt with him or be coy with him when that same evening they witnessed a woman get hit by a car, slaughtered in the middle of a street, and the person who hit her did not take any accountability. So Nick is like very shaken up by this experience and Jordan acts like, what are you talking about? And then, okay, so they have this exchange and then it says silence for a moment. And then Jordan says, however, I want to see you. So she's kind of like annoyed that he hasn't flirted back. And um, they kind of talk for a second more about absolutely nothing. And then they hang up. Nick narrates and says, we talked like that for a while. And then abruptly we weren't talking any longer. I don't know which of us hung up with a sharp click, but I know I didn't care. I couldn't have talked to her across a tea table that day if I never talked to her again in this world. And again, if you guys remember like the opening, the opening scene, not the opening scene, the opening narration from Nick is about how he doesn't pass judgment on people. But this summer of 1922 in New York, in New York City with these uber wealthy people has changed that about him. He has now changed to a person who does judge people for their actions. And Jordan is now one of those people. Okay. So then um, he, Nick is, oh, wait, hold on one sec. So, okay. So that's part one of the, of the second half of the story. Nick says this to Gatsby, they're a rotten crowd. You're worth the whole damn bunch put together which is important. And then, um, he goes to work. He like, can't get anything done. He's totally unproductive. He has this conversation with Jordan, which is basically him breaking up with her. He's just like totally over it. And then, um, Oh, I want to read this last part. I called Gatsby's house a few minutes later, but the line was busy. I tried four times. Finally, an exasperated central told me the wire was being kept open for a long distance call from Detroit. Taking out my timetable, I drew a circle around the 3.30, the 3.50 train. Then I leaned back in my chair and tried to think. It was just noon. Okay, so he, he thinks to himself, I'm just going to go see Gatsby at 3.30. Okay. Um, now, let's go to part two of chapter eight. Okay, Nick says, I want to go back a little and tell what happened at the garage after we left the night before. So now Nick is going to go back and he's going to reconstruct what happened the night before all the way to what's, what happens that afternoon. Okay. So that's what's happening. So he says that first they called Catherine and she showed up and she was drunk. Um, and the ambulance had already left and, um, someone grabbed her and took her to the hospital. 
And then um, George Wilson is still, he, he still is rocking back and forth inside the garage. And then remember Michaelis, the guy who works at the place across the street, um, like he's trying to like keep an eye on him. He's trying to make a pot of coffee. Um, and then Wilson becomes like, what, how, what's the word I'm looking for? He starts muttering incoherently. Um, he announces to no one, but Michaelis hears this, that he had a way of finding out whom the yellow car belonged to. And then he blurted out that a couple months ago, his wife had come home from the city with her face bruised and her nose swollen. Um, and so this is indicative of the fact that Wilson has been suspicious that Myrtle had been having an affair and she had been having an affair. She'd been having an affair with Tom. At the same time, you have to ask yourself, who is the one person that Wilson knows who knows who owns that yellow car? And the answer to that is Tom. So Michaelis tries to like keep George's George Wilson's spirits up by asking questions like, how long have you been married? Did you have any kids? Just like trying to like, you know, get him to talk about the good parts of his life. And um, all of a sudden the, they get to this conversation where Wilson says, you know, go open that drawer. And Michaela, it says Michaela's opened the drawer near his hand. There was nothing in it, but a small expensive dog leash made of leather and breaded silver. Um, it was apparently new this. And then Michaela's is like this. And then Wilson says, I found it yesterday afternoon. She tried to tell me about it, but I knew it was something funny. And Michaela says, you mean your wife bought it? And he said, she had it. it he, she had it wrapped in the tissue in tissue paper on her bureau. Um, then Wilson blurts out, then he killed her, said Wilson. His mouth dropped out suddenly. And Michaelis is like, what's going on here? But of course, I shouldn't say of course. So the dog leash is like the final signal to George Wilson that Myrtle is having an affair and leading a double life. So then Wilson gets, Wilson puts this all together. So this, let me pause. This is what Wilson thinks. Wilson thinks that Myrtle has been having an affair with this terrible human who beats her up and they have a dog together and now he has killed her. So Wilson thinks that he's Myrtle has been killed by the man that she's having an affair with. And he puts that together because he thinks that this man has been violent with her previously because of her um, broken nose. Okay. So George is insisting she was murdered by this man. And Michaelis is saying it was an accident. And then George says, I know, he said indefinitely, I'm one of these trusting fellas and I don't think anybody, I don't think any harm to nobody, but when I get to know a thing, I know it. It was the man in that car. She ran out to speak to him and he wouldn't stop. Okay, so now Wilson is saying, and I know who my wife has been having an affair with because it was the guy driving the yellow car. Now, if you'll remember when they came through town, Tom was driving the yellow car. But when they, when they were going home, Tom arrives to say like, hey, hey, it wasn't me. I just got here. Like I'm in this blue car. The, I, th that guy was ahead of me. And so Wilson, Wilson believes that Tom was not having the affair. And of course he knows for sure, as we all do, that Tom did not hit his wife. Okay. Um, so then this is, this part is, interesting symbolically. And if we were in class together, we would spend a lot more time on it. In this conversation with George and Michaelis, it says Wilson's eyes glazed. 
Wilson's glazed eyes turned out to the ash heaps where small gray clouds took on fantastic shape and scurried here and there in the faint dawn wind. I spoke to her, he muttered after a long silence. I told her she might fool me, but she couldn't fool God. I took her to the window. With an effort, he got up and walked to the rear window and leaned with his face pressed against it. And I said, God knows what you've been doing. Every, everybody, <laughs> sorry, everything you've been doing. You may fool me, but you can't fool God. Standing behind him was Michaelis with a shock that he was looking at the eyes of Dr. T.J. Eckelberg, which had just emerged pale and enormous from the dissolving night. God sees everything, Wilson repeated. That's an advertisement, Michaelis assured him. Something made him turn away from the window and look back into the room. But Wilson stood there a long time, his face close to the window pane, nodding into the twilight. So one thing that we would talk about as a class is what do the eyes of T.J. Uckelberg symbolize? And the eyes like look over the the um, the ash heaps or the valley of ashes, and so they um, they're this this set of glasses that looks in on just this world, just this world of the poor. And then interestingly enough, I just want to remind you guys, because he's this character will come back in chapter nine, we have another set of glasses that looks in on the world of the wealthy, and that is Old Owl Eyes. He was in the library at Gatsby's party, and he's also randomly going to make an appearance in chapter nine. Okay, so then the action continues. It says, by six o'clock in the morning, Michaelis was worn out and grateful for the sound of a car stopping outside. It was one of the watchers of the night before who had promised to come back, so he cooked breakfast for three, which he and the other man ate together. Wilson was quieter now, and Michaelis went home to sleep. When he awoke four hours later and hurried back to the garage, Wilson was gone. Okay, this is important because Wilson has now, he started to, he has started to move. Okay, his movements, he was on foot all the time, were afterward traced to Port Roosevelt and then to Gads Hill, where he bought a sandwich that he didn't eat and a cup of coffee. He must have been tired and walking slowly, for he didn't reach Gads Hill until noon. Thus far, there was no difficulty in accounting for his time. There were boys who had seen a man acting sort of crazy and a motorist at whom he stared oddly from the side of the road. Then for three hours, he disappeared from view. The police, on the strength of what he had said to Michaelis, that he, <clears throat> quote, had a way of finding out, supposed that he had spent the time going from garage to garage, thereabouts, inquiring for a yellow car. On the other hand, no garage man who had seen him ever came forward, and perhaps he had an easy, sure way of finding out what he wanted to know. And this is like the clue here that... <clears throat> He knows exactly who to talk to about who owns that car. He's going to tell. He's going to ask Tom. Now, Tom, we all know what Tom's going to do, but you have to think about what Tom knows. Tom knows that he was the one having an affair with, with George Wilson's wife, and Tom probably knows that Daisy was the one who hit Myrtle. Tom, however, volunteers none of this information. He lies to Wilson, and he tells Wilson that it was Gatsby, and he tells Wilson where Gatsby lives. Excuse me. And then he sends Wilson on his way. And so, again, like, Tom is a disgusting moral person. He is rotten, just as Nick indicates. But his rottenness, like, gets taken to the extreme in, this, in these last couple chapters. Okay, by half past two, he was in the West Egg where he asked someone the way to Gatsby's house. So by that time, he knew Gatsby's name. Meaning Tom had told him. Okay, so back at Gatsby's house at 2 o'clock, Gatsby puts on his bathing suit, and he tells his butler that if anyone phoned word, okay, that if anyone phoned, word was to be brought to him at the pool. Remember, 
Gatsby's still waiting for Daisy to call. Okay. Okay. It says he stopped at the garage for a pneumatic mattress that, that had amused his guests during the summer and a chauffeur helped him pump it up. A pneumatic mattress is just like a floating raft. I don't know why they call it. I mean, it's like old school word for it. Okay. Then he gave instructions that the, that the open car wasn't to be taken out under any circumstances. And this was strange because the front right fender needed repair. So he's given his staff directions, like don't take the car out, even though it's been dented, of course, from hitting a woman. Okay. Then it says Gatsby shouldered the mattress and started for the pool. Once he stopped and shifted it a little and the chauffeur asked him if he needed, if he needed help, but he shook his head and in a moment disappeared among the yellowing trees. Okay. I'm going to read this next paragraph, the whole thing. No telephone message arrived, but the butler went without his sleep and waited for it until four o'clock until long after there was anyone to give, give it to if it came. I have an idea that Gatsby himself didn't believe it would come, and perhaps that no longer cared. So Nick is wondering, like, did he care if the phone rang? You know, did he still hold out hope? Oh, this next part. If it was true, if that was true, he must have felt that he had lost the old warm world, paid a high price for living too long with a single dream. He must have looked up at an unfamiliar sky, through frightening leaves and shivered as he found what a grotesque thing a rose is and how raw the sunlight was upon the scarcely created grass. A new world, material without, real, without being real, where poor ghosts, breathing dreams like air, drifted fortuitously about, like that ashen, fantastic figure gliding toward him through the amorphous trees. Okay, so this is a little confusing, but Nick is wondering, like, what was Gatsby thinking as he was in the pool? He was, he, you know, if if he had finally admitted to himself that Daisy wasn't going to call, like, his entire world is falling apart, right? Everything in his world has lost its color. The dream is is dead. And Nick is wondering how that felt for Gatsby at this moment. <clears throat> okay, and said, so then Nick is also saying, He's probably imagining this new world where ghosts move. And then when Nick says, like that ashen, fantastic figure gliding toward him through the amorphous trees, that figure that Nick is referring to is a person, an actual person who is coming at Gatsby through the trees. Okay. The chauffeur, he was one of Wilson's, <laughs> Wilson's, <laughs> the chauffeur, he was one of Wolfsheim's protégés, heard the shots. Afterward, he could only say that he hadn't thought anything much about them. I drove from the station directly to Gatsby's house, and my rushing anxiously up the front steps was the first thing that alarmed anyone. But they knew then, I firmly believe. With scarcely a word said, four of us, the chauffeur, butler, gardener, and I, hurried down to the pool. There was a faint, barely perceptible movement of the water as the fresh flow from one end urged its way toward the drain at the other. With little ripples that were hardly the shadows of waves, the laden mattress moved irregularly down the pool. A small gust of wind that scarcely corrugated the surface was enough to disturb its accidental course with its accidental burden. The touch of a cluster of leaves revolved slowly, tracing like the leg of a compass, a thin red circle in the water. Okay, so before I read the last um, sentence, we should note here that what, what they're looking at is Gatsby's body floating irregularly on the mattress, 
or in the water and the blood is now coming out. That's the thin red circle. So he's been shot and he's dead in the pool. And then Nick narrates, it was after we started with Gatsby toward the house that the gardener saw Wilson's body a little way off in the grass and the Holocaust was complete. Okay, a bunch of things I want to say right here. So first of all, just so, just to summarize the plot or what has happened, Wilson comes to Gatsby's house. He kills Gatsby with a gun, and then he he then he kills himself. Okay, so when Nick sprints over to Gatsby's house, he doesn't. He's just really worried. So no one has called Nick, but Nick just knows he just doesn't feel right. So he comes running in, and he suspects that the, like these guys who worked for Wolfsheim, like they knew that Gatsby was going to die or they, they didn't really care. And so he says, um, he, Nick says, I bet they knew when I got there that Gatsby had died or Gatsby had been killed. Um, so they all run down to the pool. And then when they're trying to remove Gatsby's body from the pool, they see that the Wilson's body is also lying in the grass. What's so interesting about this last line is that Holocaust, the word Holocaust is used here. Um, and it's a lowercase h. And one thing that's sort of haunting is this book is published in 1922. So this book is published before the historical event that we now know as the Holocaust. And so the the word Holocaust all by itself just means um, a destruction or slaughter on a mass scale. So Fitzgerald is using the word Holocaust not as an allusion to a historical event because the event hasn't occurred yet, but just in its definition, which means a mass killing. So those two are dead. And that is the end of chapter eight. Now, in the beginning of this episode, I talked about water and how authors use water. So there's this book that I teach to AP Lit called How to Read Literature Like a Professor. And the guy talks all about like these common symbols and elements that... um, authors and filmmakers, I would argue, tend to use. And one concept is water. And (laughs) the guy who writes this book, his name's Thomas C. Foster. He's really funny. But he has this theory that um, if a person goes underwater, there's one of two options. They're going to stay under, which means that they're going to die, obviously. Um, And or they could come back up from the water. And if they come back up from the water, they've been baptized in some way, spiritually, you know, metaphorically, however you want to think about it. Um, and this occurs a lot in major works of literature and, and in a lot of major works of literature, when you have a body of water around characters, you're either going to have a baptism or someone's going to die. I mean, it's not a guarantee obviously, but authors tend to use water for either a death or a rebirth. Um, I don't know. This would be a good discussion question if we were together. Like, why the pool? Why the pool? He hasn't swam in the pool all summer. If you've watched the movie or if you watch the movie clips that I've been providing, the pool is this extremely central um, thing or image. Like, It's always right smack in the middle of the scenes. So many scenes take place around the pool, talking around the pool. And it's got that huge you know, emblem of Jay Gatsby. The, I think it's the JG in the middle of the pool. And so, I don't know, I I would be intrigued as to why you guys think the murder happens in the pool. Um, If you have not watched the clip that I put in Classroom, you should watch it. It's haunting because they put all of these elements together. They put in 
Um, you know, obviously Gatsby getting in the pool, but then they have the phone like right next to the pool and he's waiting for Daisy to call and then the phone rings and then Wilson shows up and it's so good. So heartbreaking. So now if we think about our story arc, or if we think about our, like, you know, how all stories sort of go, we have one chapter left. And the only thing that can now happen in chapters nine is what we call the resolution. So how are all the loose ends going to be tied up? Well, Nick has to have some interaction with Tom. We have to know what happens to Tom and Daisy. And we have to know Nick's final thoughts on the story. So that's all going to happen next week when you guys read chapter nine. Okay. I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for listening.